Considering how I structure this podcast, it shouldn't come as a surprise to hear that I place considerable value in close reading, critical thinking, and deconstruction as it pertains to the humanities. I personally consider it enjoyable to take a piece of media and examine what it's saying, how it's saying it, and how this reflects the culture that created it. Furthermore, I'm a bit mystified by people who are aggressively opposed to ever doing this. I'm not moved by the just-turn-your-brain-off-and-enjoy-it argument. Not only do I feel that it closes me off from facets of enjoyment, but I also feel that this line of thinking is potentially dangerous if taken to its end point. Your English teacher wasn't pumping you with useless trivia when they told you to study Hamlet's motivations and theorize how he came to his conclusions. They were, in a way, trying to give you skills that would be applicable to your adult life. It's useful and even essential to be fluent in reading comprehension skills when operating in our world. If one isn't adept at examining the nuances of language, the fundamentals of storytelling, and the rubrics of persuasive argument, they can go down some terrible paths. STEM is a wonderful and essential thing. I'd definitely be in a better place if I was a bit better at math. At the same time, a lot of people who consider the humanities to be useless seem to fall for multi-level marketing scams, or they embrace juice cleanses, or they don't notice that TERFs are making the same arguments against trans people that say segregationists were making against black people 70 years ago. This, in a roundabout way, brings me to Slacks, a low-budget Canadian horror film that is almost aggressively didactic. Slacks has a lot to say about fast fashion, service labor, and a number of other things. Those who dislike examining media as a part of the larger fabric of society will probably find Slacks to be irritatingly preachy, and maybe they'd say that it'd be more fun if it just focused on the killer pants. I, on the other hand, probably would have found this version of Slacks to be a bit tedious, even at an efficient 77 minutes. The thing is, your art will say something about the culture that produced it, even if you bend over backwards to avoid stating anything controversial whatsoever. This sort of product is endorsing complacency, which is just as political as screaming about Marxism through a megaphone. Sorry, complicit centrists, but there's no such thing as neutrality. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Alright, joining me on this one is my sister Cheryl. Hi! <laughs> Slacks was your pick. Yes, I was really excited to do this one. And why were you so excited about doing Slacks for this show? Two reasons. One being that it's a newer movie and we haven't done a newer movie for a while. Yeah, guilty. <laughs> the other reason being is that I love practical effects and puppetry and this movie has a lot of that. More on that in a bit. That is something that was near and dear to the people who made this movie's heart. People who would probably enjoy hanging out with Cheryl. Yay! <laughs> but first, plot recap. Our central character is an idealistic teenager named Libby McLean, who arrives at a trendy clothing store, the Canadian Cotton Clothiers, or CCC, for her first day of work. In addition to store manager Craig, Libby meets self-absorbed and disgruntled employees, including Shruti, Hunter, Gemma, and Lord. Company founder Harold Langsgrove briefly visits to give a spirited speech to employees preparing for the highly anticipated launch of Super Shapers, designer jeans capable of conforming to any body type. Anybody that's ever worked in retail is going to see themselves or have like revisited trauma in these early scenes. There's a lot, and it's played very broadly. And of course, there's this overarching thing about how CCC is different from those other clothing people and that they ethically source their cotton and it's done completely organic and there's no sweatshops involved or anything like that. And you can probably guess where that's going. <laughs> 
Gemma, wanting to make her butt look good for the sale, steals a pair of beast jeans from a storeroom. The jeans then come to life and constrict around Gemma's waist until she was torn in half in the bathroom. Craig then sends Hunter to look for Gemma. Hunter finds the jeans and becomes entranced. The jeans seem to have a hypnotic effect upon the weak-minded. I mean, aren't we all just slaves to fashion? <sighs> Hunter tries putting on the pants, but they twist until she falls and impales her head on a coat hook. Craig sends Libby to look for Gemma and Hunter soon afterwards, and he finds Gemma's mangled body and alerts Craig. Worried that police or media could complicate his chance of promotion, Craig convinces Libby to keep Gemma's death quiet since they are on overnight lockdown until the new line launches anyways. And, in a way that's very convenient for this film, phone signals cannot get out. Lord then finds the jeans, however, he doesn't fare much better because the zipper severs several of his body parts. The waist then forms a mouth that bites Lord to death. It is such a cute, angry face. I died. The pockets are its eyes and I love it. It's like evocative of the evil hand puppets from Labyrinth. Libby again asks to call the cops after finding Lord in a box along with several of his other body parts. What? No, that's just a small mannequin in a small box. Craig convinces her that he's going to call Harold, whom Libby views as something of a guru and ethical motivator for her. And then as her back is turned, he hits her on the back of the head with a mannequin part and then locks her in a closet because he wants to make regional manager. <laughs> Sorry, it's just any time I see mannequin legs or arms, I immediately giggle because they're like both horrifying and comical at the same time. Fashion blogger and social media influencer Peyton Jules arrives with a small crew to record a sneak preview of the jeans. One of those sponsored segments, I imagine. The jeans strangle Peyton on camera before going on a rampage that kills everyone else in the store except for Shruti. See, Shruti's just kind of rocking out to her Bollywood hits and the pants just start dancing along. It's so cute! Craig realizes at this point what is happening when he sees jeans lapping up blood on the floor. He tries to warn conceded PR person Barb Lubotsky, but when Barb dresses him down and says that he'll never get promoted and then he's just going to be a sad store manager for the remainder of his life, he allows her to go off and pick up the jeans so they can murder her. Libby at this point recovers and finds Peyton's dropped camera, which contains footage of the killing spree. Libby shows the alarming video to Shruti and she sees that the jeans could have killed her, but they didn't because of the Bollywood music. And also, the jeans have wrapped itself at this point around a mannequin and have put a bindi on its forehead with some of the gore. A little iffy, but we'll keep going with that. Well, but hang on, though. You do have to appreciate the way that the upper mannequin moves. Like, that was just... there. It's like an adorable Muppet. Mm -hmm. Libby and Shruti take the camera to Craig, who continues trying to downplay that they are dealing with homicidal jeans. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who hasn't had that kind of a supervisor though that's just like it's not as big a problem let me just keep bluffing until my shift is over yeah i'm very concerned about how this will affect my reputation i mean the dignity of our brand when i was younger i sprained my wrist at my job and the man the supervisor on duty wouldn't let me go to the emergency room and said that i needed to tough it out because the floor couldn't be short the next supervisor came in and immediately flipped him off and then she drove me to the emergency but like, I, I swear like everybody has that experience in retail. Pretty much. Let us know in the comments. <laughs> 
Anyways, recognizing a connection to India, Libby asked Shruti to speak to the genes on the overhead speaker in Hindi. By writing blood on a wall with a severed hand, the genes reveal that they are possessed by Kirat, a 13-year-old child laborer who was killed by a cotton thresher in the experimental field used to source super shapers. Lib sorry, I just, I weirdly think that they handled her, the 13-year-old kid's death really artfully when you think about it. They never depict anything directly, which might have been more about building atmosphere or at least circumventing budgetary limitations. <laughs> Libby and Shruti angrily confront Craig about Kirat's revelation, at which point he admits that Canadian Cotton Clothier's image of being organic and humanitarian is a lie, and that the retailer actually exploits sweatshops and GMOs. They handle everything through subcontractors in order to give themselves plausible deniability. Libby and Shruti begin to bargain to publicly expose Kirat's story in exchange for an end to the murders. And Kirat's ghost starts going along with it, but Craig interrupts by blasting the pants with a fire extinguisher. Libby and Shruti then uh, run off to find more pairs of possessed jeans eating dead bodies. Craig, looking to get the camera that has footage implicating himself and CCC, stabs Shruti to get the damaging footage, but finds its memory card missing. Craig begins choking out Libby while looking for the memory card on her. They are interrupted by a horde of jeans coming for Craig, and they devour him down to a skeleton. Libby recovers from the chokehold in time to see that the store's automated lockdown is about to end. She tries to bar the doors as they unlock, but anxious customers trample Libby to death as they storm the store. The jeans then go on another massive killing spree, and the memory card is seen in Libby's hand as she is bleeding out. Dun, dun, dun. End of film. Yep. Alright, the development of this film. Screenwriter Patricia Gomez came up with the basic concept of Slacks while taking a road trip with director Elsa Kephart. They were goofy young women in their early 20s at this time with hours of driving ahead of them, so the conversation turned to words that they found unappealing. Someone in the car mentioned Slacks, and then they started chanting that word over <laughs> and over again as something of an inside joke. Gomez's mind eventually turned to a pair of sentient homicidal pants, and she decided that this would be a fun idea for a cheap movie. And she was right. 100% right. When asked about her influences as a horror writer, Gomez states Evil Dead as a formative influence on her writing. Although she also name-checks Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Thing, she considers those to be familiar comfort movies that she throws on when she needs background noise while folding laundry. <laughs> when an interviewer... The Thing's comfort? You know, some people are just like that, including many people on this show. I mean, fair, but, like, the dog. The, d the dogs. I don't know. That part of it just, like, makes me immediately go, no. An interviewer also compared Slacks to Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, which Gomez took as a high compliment. Aww. Slacks was written in fits and starts over the course of roughly 10 years. Caphart and Gomez would put out the horror films Graveyard Alive, A Zombie Nurse in Love, and Go in the Wilderness in the Interim. The first draft was a parody of slasher films, except with a haunted pair of pants. It took place at a high school and felt a lot like Scream. Gomez felt that it was undercooked and put it back on the shelf for another few years. 
after working at the Gap for a period of time... <laughs> you can totally see that. <laughs> Gomez and Kephart dusted off their Slack script and then set it at a clothing outlet instead. Gomez made the manager character a composite of various shitty bosses she had in retail. Yup, 100%. That, that, his voice. He did, that actor did such a good job. She added that the Slack screenplay was the very first time that she felt that her time at the Gap was anything besides a complete waste. <laughs> Several years later, Gomez watched a documentary on the fast fashion industry, and she suddenly felt that the missing component in Slacks was finally apparent, and started writing that into the screenplay. In pretty much all the interviews I came across, Gomez talks about how she considers it important for um, horror media to speak about various facets of society, and that not only does it make the film more interesting, but it can also turn into a teachable moment, because, well, if you're seeking out investigative journalism or a documentary about fast fashion, you're probably on the it's evil train already. Yeah. However, if you stumble across it in a horror movie, you're not necessarily aware of how deep this goes, and it might be your first step on a longer journey. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. Because, like, I'm a sucker when it comes... If a company's just like, we do good things, I'm like, oh, cool. And I take it at face value until someone's like... But they don't. And I'm like, but they told me they did. <laughs> and every time I'm like, oh, really? Slacks is unashamedly agitprop. And frankly, whenever I come across somebody who's just like, I don't like it when my media tries to teach me things, I don't really believe them. I think they don't like it when the media tries to teach them things that they either disagree with or they are uncomfortable thinking about. There's this sort of Christian remnant of purity where if you are ignorant about the societal injustice, that absolves you from any sense of complicity in it. But if you find out, then you're on the hook for it, and now you need to feel guilty about it. I mean, I just don't understand the argument of I don't like it when entertainment teaches me something because literally every single type of media made for children. I don't think anyone who says that actually believes it. I think they only throw it out when it's teaching them something that they don't like, like or teaching them something that they disagree with. Even, like, Blue's Clues is teaching kids, like, basic life skills, like, don't touch the stove. Like, <laughs> I, uh, that's such a bad, like, argument. I mean, I find it incredibly asinine, and I've brought it up on the show a couple of times already, but moving on. Kephart shot the film in three main locations. One was an abandoned men's clothing store in a suburban Montreal mall. The back end of the store, where the employees are, a much more dimly lit section, was shot in an active chain store after hours at a different mall. The warehouse was a fabric decorating storage facility on the other end of the city. Kephart deliberately avoided showing the outside world. Retail spaces, they carefully arranged themselves in ways that trapped customers inside a sort of simulated universe until they buy something. I was literally just at a clothing store today, and you're not wrong. It's so weird. It kind of reminds me of casinos in that if you go into a casino, they don't have windows, and they're usually playing ambient music in a nonstop loop where the songs never end and sort of to give you the idea that you're losing track of how long you've been in there. Yeah! And then, like, um, we couldn't even find, we had to, we were picking up something, and we couldn't even find the changing room without going through, like, four different sections of clothes and, like, home goods. 
During my time working overnight at a convenience store, I came across the concept of loss leaders because like everything in a convenience store is jacked up because they can only order in small batches, except for one thing. It's usually something that everybody needs, like milk, and it's also something that has a short shelf life, like milk, so you can't stockpile it. And they always put it in the back end of the store along a winding path so you can walk past a whole bunch of impulse items before you get to it. See, this is like what, we, what I was talking about earlier, where I'm just like, somebody will just tell me something, and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. And then like an actual human will be like, no, but this is the reason. And I'm like, really? <laughs> like that's, I just had that moment where you're like, the, I'm like, the milk always is in the back. And you go through like all of that candy. These things are created with a lot of thought beforehand. I once read this piece about Walmart, specifically Walmarts in a certain section of Texas along the Gulf of Mexico will stock extra strawberry Pop-Tarts during the weeks where there's an intense hurricane because they have found out that in the days before a hurricane hits that specific part of Texas, they go out and buy a lot of strawberry Pop-Tarts. Not just any Pop-Tarts, strawberry ones. That is how detailed this type of research gets. That's kind of impressive in its own right. Like, <laughs> as scary as it is, I'm, like, so, like, numb to it now that I'm like, ah, I wonder why. Think about this, dear listener. How many trackers have been placed on your phone just going through the course of landing on this podcast? <laughs> Kephart insisted upon practical effects for the killer pants. Yes! Gomez, a Hollywood accountant, was thankful that she wrote Slacks without looking up the cost of animating a pair of pants for the film because she believed that would have dissuaded her from going through with it. <laughs> the Slacks were made by Naked and Famous. This is a smaller um, clothing manufacturer that insists that their stuff is made without GMOs and done ethically, but this movie teaches us to be cynical about that. But hey, maybe they're not lying. Kephart picked a design that sort of looked like there were eyeballs in the back pockets. Yes! Roughly 45 pairs of jeans were used in the shoot. Each had a specific function, whether it was slithering, jumping, dancing, strangling, or so on. And each one had different rigs depending on how much blood was supposed to be on the pants at that moment. Oh! Gomez praised Kephart's direction specifically for this bit because how are you supposed to direct killer pants? Kephart found a way. <laughs> and they're so cute! Kephart didn't want the pants to fly or do anything too supernatural. The vibe she was going for was like a reptile or some kind of predatory insect. Aside from Libby, who is the designated straight man of the film, Kephart wanted all of the characters to be a little bit over the top, at least. She kept encouraging the actors to lay it on a bit thicker in their takes, particularly the fashion vlogger, who was like, I know this is a horror movie about killer pants, but is my reading too over the top? She's like, no, do it more. I mean, she has, like, Debbie vibes. Not Debbie vibes, but um, from the camp. What's the camp kid's name in Adam's family? The girl. The oh, Becky? Yeah. She has her vibes. This was also Kephart's strategy in Go in the Wilderness. Creative kills were also a priority to Kephart. She figured that Slacks would succeed or fail based on whether the death scenes were fun to watch. However, as Cheryl pointed out while we were watching it, oh, yeah. one of the deaths was very disappointing to her. 
Oh, super disappointing. I was just, cause like, it's just, it feels like such a cheat because you don't see anything. You just see blood going down the wall. Well, it's like the second kill. It's Hunter's death. Yeah. And yeah, they're still kind of working things up to it. And there were also logistical issues. Kephart decided that she wanted to reshoot the scene a different way, but the actress who played Hunter wasn't available anymore. So they had to use a fake Shemp. And that's why you can't see anything besides, you know, her from like the, the waist down or the back of her head or so on. Yeah, I mean, because, like, the way that she dies is she lands, like, face first into a coat hook. And I'm like, that would have been so cool with practical effects. Ah! All right, let's go into the cast. First and foremost, we have Romaine Dennis as Libby McLean. And is that she's supposed to be the anchor of the film, like the naive waif who comes in thinking that CCC is different from all those other mall outlets, but no, they're just like everyone else. Like me! <laughs> And, yeah, we're supposed to see this world through her eyes. I mean, anybody who seeks out Slacks knows where this is going. But uh, still, she's the audience surrogate figure, and I think she does a fairly good job with that. Yep, she does. I kind of like her white savior complex because at the end, like, we're tor building towards the end. Her response to the manager after he has, like, blasted the pants was, I had her! I'm like, you didn't do anything. You weren't translating. You weren't talking to the pants. <laughs> She's like, I had her! And then we have Brett Donahue as Craig. He did such a good job. I've had that asshole manager before. I'm terrified of becoming that asshole manager. Yeah, I've had a couple of guys who reminded me of Craig. You know, people who um, put their own movements ahead of the company and know that, that they're dealing with naive teenagers who will take what they're saying at face value and they take advantage of that. Because if you were listening to this podcast and you've gotten this far without slamming things shut in anger, you're probably sympathetic to the very fact that almost all of the theft that goes on in the United States is wage theft. And that's just coming up with excuses not to give people their checks or convincing teenagers to work off the clock, you know, come in 15 minutes early, leave a half hour late, and because they're 16, they don't know any better. Craig does shit like that to Libby throughout the entire running time. Oh, God, and then that canned enthusiasm and, like, do you enjoy being afraid right now? Do you want everyone else to feel that way? That's not being a team player. And the fact that he's, like, screaming Tony Robbins platitudes to himself on the laptop while he's <laughs> saying that he's got this regional manager thing on lock. Whenever I have to do a stressful meeting, though, like, I do psych myself up beforehand. Not with Tony Robbins platitudes, though. I actually listen to, like, X Gone Give It To You, which sounds, like, so terrible coming out of my mouth. But, like, that does get me pumped. <laughs> Take your word for it. <laughs> All right, next we have Sahar Bojani as Shruti. She's playing kind of this disaffected person, and I don't know if that's over the top, but she is, like, leaning into the Daria side. Yeah, I really enjoyed her, like, because my parents are Indian, I need to like Bollywood music, and then, like, two scenes later, she's listening to the song. I'm like, that's amazing. Yeah, she doesn't want the white kid to just, like, presume something about her because of her ethnicity, and is like, no, actually, I am into Bollywood music. <laughs> it was just really Fuck good. you, kid. 
I think her arc is a little more limited than the two characters we mentioned beforehand just because of time constraint issues. This movie is 77 minutes long. Uh, you know, there is supposed to be something about her, like, growing a conscience and being like, oh, right, this place is a hellhole. Although, I mean, where else are you going to work? You're going to work at a place that's ethical? There is no place that's ethical. More on that in the thematic bits. All right, it's Stephen Bogart as Harold Lansgrove. He's only in there for one scene, although it is a fun bit because he's another guy who throws completely canned motivational platitudes at people and clearly doesn't believe it and is just throwing out all of these things there where he's just telling people what he thinks they want to hear. Oh, yeah, he's like a, I mean, what kind of person, like, who hasn't heard the, like, we're all a family here? We spend more time with each other than we spend with our real family. Yeah, that's a problem. Right? That's a thing I think about a lot. I'm not happy about it. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. And yeah, I, I do like the bit where he calls Craig Chris. <laughs> and then when he gets called out on he's like, you can call me. He doesn't even apologize without missing a beat. He's just like, no, call me Hank. <laughs> or Harold or Harry. Was it Harry? Uh, Harold. Yeah. Alright, and uh, the last person I think I should touch upon is Erica Anderson as Peyton Jules, the fashion vlogger. Well, Craig is the kill that they save for the very last moments of the film because he's the most satisfying death. You're waiting for him to die the whole time. She's kind of like the layup kill because unless you're in that sphere, it's very easy to dislike fashion vloggers. I don't know. Like, I, have, I don't have that much experience with those videos. Well, it's just Instagram influencers who are very clearly trying to sell you a lifestyle that is unattainable, even for them, usually. And it's built upon this image of complicity and, once again, that canned, toxic positivity <laughs> just radiates from every pore. And she sort of takes all those bits and pieces from various fashion vloggers and combines them all together and dials it up to 11. There's a reason that her death is in the trailer, because most of the people who are interested in slacks probably have extreme distaste for that sort of facet of fashion, especially online, or, you know, whether it's um, YouTube or Instagram or TikTok or what have you. And I just really like puppet pants murdering people. <laughs> Right, for the release and reception, Slacks premiered at the Fantasia International Film Festival in August 2020. Kephart's prior features were also screened there. Oh, that's so unfortunate timing-wise. Yes, the whole festival was almost scrapped due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but apparently Canada was recovered enough, or at least it seemed it was at that point, to go through with it regardless. After a limited theatrical release in Canada, Slacks' streaming rights were acquired by Shudder and was added to the platform in early 2021. Gomez was particularly excited about this because she was afraid, even without the pandemic beforehand, that slacks would just come and go and nobody would notice it. Aww. Uh, reviews were largely positive. Most of the praise centered on its satirical components and its decision to use a lean running time to avoid wearing out the novelty of its quirky premise. Oh, I 100% agree. If that movie had been longer, that would have been a problem. Yeah, like even 90 minutes would be pushing it. Yeah, it knew exactly what it wanted to do with a very smart amount of time. Alright, and that brings me to themes. First and most obvious one is fast fashion. Now this is something that I've brought up a couple of times, but 
if you are new to it, fast fashion is a clothing industry business model in which recent catwalk trends are mass produced at low cost in order to bring them to retail stores while demand is hot. This came into prominence during the late 20th century when synthetic fabrics brought time costs down and textile producers moved their manufacturing to sweatshops in Southeast Asia. Fast fashion depends on a large contingent of exploited and abused laborers working in virtual slavery. Also, because fast fashion thrives off the fickleness of fashion trends, much of its product is either quickly thrown away after purchase or never sold at all. Any profile on fast fashion will include pics or video of landfills covered in thousands of cheaply produced designer socks that are so three months ago. This shit's evil, and it has come under fire in recent years. Most major fashion designers have made token remarks about fast fashion, but whether this is sincere or is a PR stunt remains to be seen. Like the people who made slacks, I am a bit cynical whenever someone like Donna Karen or Versace claims that they're going to make take turns to be more ethical. I mean, that's fair. Yeah, there's plenty of clothing initiatives made against fast fashion have turned out to be we're delegating to third parties and therefore we are willfully ignorant of where this is coming from, or they turn out to be greenwashing tactics. Corporations are not ethical. Their only motive is profit, and they will only do the right thing if they have absolutely no other choice, and they will weasel their way out of it if they can find a way to. I did uh, one of my college reports that I had to do was on Nike and how they responded to, to the sweatshop in, um, incidents. Wasn't great. That was the big take, the hot take of the paper. <laughs> And while fashion is what we're bringing up here, it's, it's all over. I mean, the chocolate industry is pretty atrocious. They still use slave labor. Companies like Mars or Hershey's, they uh, delegate that sort of thing to uh, various cocoa plantations near the equator where they uh, are legally exempt from having to deal with that as their personal problems. Although, apparently there is a class action lawsuit going on at the moment. I wish we had Sylvan here, because I bet Sylvan would have, like, a lot of like info about that yeah that brings me to my next point there is no ethical consumption under capitalism you knew that was coming yeah by now it's common knowledge that the whole carbon footprint deal was conjured up by the fossil fuel industry as a deflection tactic it is common for conservative talking heads to counter climate change points with whataboutism arguments over how prominent environmentalists own a car or eat cheeseburgers, as if this is some kind of gotcha moment that absolves us from having to ever talk about this ever again. Once again, if we are ignorant of the injustice, this means that um, we don't have to do anything about it, I guess. Plenty of people still see this as an ironclad counter to this, but I always think about this one study where they studied a homeless man who sleeps in shelters and eats in soup kitchens and tracking him they found that his carbon footprint is still unsustainable individual choices are not enough serious institutional changes need to occur taking the bus and using energy efficient light bulbs will not cut it going off and living in the mountains like a hermit is not going to cut it there's just no way of getting around it. The people who profit the most and are the most responsible for things the way they are need to be held accountable, not just the person who needs to commute to work because we live in an area where all of the public transportation was shut down in order to sell more cars. There's a degree of coercion here. I know that I'm being really quiet, but it's like it's such a somber topic. I'm like, yeah, let the smart guy talk about it. 
That being said, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism is sometimes used as a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card. Some see it as a license to shrug their shoulders, do whatever, and avoid any sort of responsibility whatsoever. And once again, I stand behind everything I just said, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do anything at all. I can't take down ExxonMobil all by myself, but... I've stopped eating meat, I choose products that are not made out of plastic every time I can, I try to repair my stuff instead of throwing it out and buying a new one, I don't eat a Chick-fil-A for any goddamn reason, I don't give any money to J.K. Rowling, I never cast a vote for anyone who thinks that global warming is a hoax invented by George Soros to create a race war. But, like, lean into that, too, though, because, like, one of the arguments that pisses me off the most is, like, well, my vote doesn't count, I'm like, bitch, like, vote, well, Locally, even locally, your vote is going to be a huge matter. How many people don't vote for, like, just, like, local politicians? Oh, I, I mean, I get the arguments behind it, because aside from, say, uh, social issues like abortion and trans rights, Democrats and Republicans are pretty much interchangeable, especially when it comes to, like, domestic spending policy and dumping endless amounts of cash into the military. That being said, from a consequentialist perspective, the lesser of two evils is still something that you should participate in. If your goal is to reduce harm, picking the person who will do less harm, there's no reasonable reason why you can't do it. You definitely shouldn't end it there. In terms of civic engagement, voting is probably one of the least effective things you can do, but it's not nothing. And if it was nothing, a whole lot of people wouldn't be dumping a whole lot of money into expunging voter rolls of black people, for example. So yeah, it shouldn't stop there. You shouldn't be complacent with casting your vote once every four years or you know two years and hoping for the best. There should be more to it than that, but... Yeah, there are no easy answers to this. Things look very bleak in a lot of ways, and in a lot of ways we can't look really all that much further than our neighborhood, as Cheryl put it, but things might take a turn if more and more people just do that. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I'm like, I, just, I keep agreeing with you, so I'm nodding. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not, that's not registering with the microphone. But I'm like, yeah, we have similar opinions. This is great. I'm sure that that is fascinating for people to listen to. Yeah, indeed. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm going to bring on some dickhead contrarian just to, like, say the opposite of whatever I'm saying. Be like, no, taxation is theft and uh, the free market will solve all of those problems you just brought up. <laughs> like, really explain how. <laughs> Ooh, interesting counterpoint. Do go on. <laughs> Anyways, that's the entirety of my notes for Slacks. Is there uh, anything we haven't mentioned about this movie that you would like to put on the record? I feel like we haven't stated enough, despite how often I tried to shoehorn it in, how wonderful the puppetry is for this. They used green screens. I think that they used a tremendous amount of blood, a ridiculous amount, and I loved it. And the fact that the pants like lop, like lapped up the blood, and at one point when they opened to make like the pants open up to make like a, like a hissy face and like. Like you can kind of see like teeth like that was my favorite thing ever 
Gomez and Kephart said that they did not want to use any CGI unless they absolutely had to, and that does come across in the way the pants look. And then, like, uh, the the head in the box. Like, you know how they got that effect. You know that they cut a hole in the box and just put the actor's head inside. But, like, even knowing that, that, that that's how they did it, they did it so well. I just, I can't stop with the kills in this movie. I loved all of them except for the hook one that I didn't get to see. I was robbed. All right, and with that, thanks for listening, everybody. Join us next time for more.